Welcome to the Why God Why podcast. This is Peter Englert. I am here with uh, my phenomenal co-host, John Amaya, who's the area crew director for Upstate phenomenal. New York. You want to go phenomenal? Yeah, that's great. That, I feel very honored. But anyways, <laughs> our producer um, is Dylan Carnival. We are here with um, with Chase Replogo. Did I get that right, Chase? Yeah, close. Rep logo. Close Rep logo. Okay. So we are here with Chase. Chase is from the illustrious Springfield, Missouri. He has an upcoming book coming out. And and John, share with us the question that we are going to ask Chase today. Well, we're going to be talking about uh, why are healthy masculine examples so rare in our society? So do you have any thoughts about that, Peter? So here's the deal. I am so excited about this episode for a couple different reasons. Number one, um, I feel like masculinity, it's either associated with the word toxic or like I am not the camping, you know, run out to the wilderness. Like I got sports. Like that's my main. So I'm curious how Chase kind of shines light on it. What about you, man? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we all in this in this in our current cultural setting, if I can say that correctly, I think masculinity can kind of be a uh, like a four letter word. It's it's kind of something that's either we just don't talk about it too much because there's too many different definitions about what it is and what's a healthy version of it and what isn't. And so I think that's why it's going to be really important for us just to have an open dialogue with Chase today and go, okay, maybe what is a healthy definition of masculinity and why is it so rare to find somebody who's living that out uh, consistently in their life. So I'm I'm excited about this convo. Chase, welcome to the Why God Why podcast. Great to have you here, man. Yeah, thanks, guys. It's, a, it's an honor and a privilege. Love the podcast and really uh, thankful to join you for what's a hard, but I think as you guys have alluded to, a really important conversation. Yeah. Well, and we're remiss to say Chase has his own podcast, The Pastor Writer, um, and he has an upcoming book that's coming out. Chase, I'm going to change things up a little bit. How did you, how did you get interested in masculinity? Obviously you're a man, but how did this topic kind of hit you that you decided you wanted to write a book about it? Yeah, well, it surprises me a little bit because like some of you have alluded to, I wouldn't, by no means would I say I am a masculine man that other men need to emulate because I've figured out what masculinity is. I mean, far from it. Um, You know, I'm, I'm a pastor. Uh, I was not good at sports growing up. Um, I, you know, my dad was a cop, my brother's a captain in the Marine Corps and here I am a pastor, you know, so I, I've grown up around these conversations, but for me, what, when I really started to recognize, I wouldn't put it that masculinity was something I wanted to write about, but something I needed to figure out was pastorally. I've got young men in my congregation who I could see really wrestling with this, coming to me with questions. Um, and oftentimes I, I didn't feel like I had a good way of answering those questions. So I had my own sort of internal wrestling with. What does it mean to be, you know, for me, it's a husband, a dad, uh, a maturing man. What does it mean? What is masculinity? But then also to try to put that in such a way that it's helping other men in my congregation figure that out for themselves. And so for me, early on, it was not, let me write a book about masculinity. It was, I'm going to do a lot of reading and thinking and praying and really trying to come to terms with where do I land in the middle of this conversation that really represents much bigger conversations happening socially right now. Um, what does it mean to be a Christian man? What is masculinity? Just what do I make of this question? 
Mm. Yeah, that's so good. I mean, I find a lot of that uh, in my own work as well with college students. Like, I think a lot of people are, wrestle with this topic, and there isn't a lot of, I don't know, it doesn't feel like a safe topic to just talk about for a lot of people. So I really appreciate the fact that you're addressing this, not only with your congregation, but that you're writing a book about this. I think is going to be super helpful for a lot of people. I think that for many of us, we learn best through example, through the people that we've seen do this well. Do you have examples in your own life that you look to and you go, now there was an example, nah, nobody's perfect, we're not looking for perfect examples, but where you go, well, this, I, I learned this about masculinity from this example in my life, or this about masculinity from another example. Um, some things you can share from personal experience there? Yeah, sure. I think I like the way you worded the question because I don't think there are sort of, and I think it can be destructive for the, to be sort of individuals who epitomize masculinity. And if I could just emulate everything about them, then I could also feel masculine or feel like a man. It really does come down to this quality thing. And for me, I think as you guys have sort of been discussing why, why it can feel hard to find these examples is oftentimes I, I worry we're looking for the wrong things. We're looking for these sort of external things or role-based things. And part of what complicates this conversation about masculinity is the, the definitions of it. What is masculinity? And I tend to define that, and this is working towards your question, I promise. Mm -hmm. I, I tend to define or think about masculinity as a set of sort of raw attributes that make up men. And those attributes can be you know, you can have more, uh, more of certain masculine attributes and less of other masculine attributes. And one man can have more masculinity than another man, but it's sort of each of us are individually made up of these instincts, these urges, these desires. And, and many of those are masculine. Some of them can be feminine. doesn't mean you're not a man, but the task before us is how do I take inventory of this masculinity, these, these instincts that I have, and how do I mature those instead of just indulging them? How do I mature them into something useful? How do I gain control or mastery over them? And for me, that's the move of um, recognizing my masculinity and maturing it into manhood, something that's actually useful to the responsibilities that I have before me. And what's interesting as a Christian to have that conversation is um, it's always struck me that the Bible does not offer individual lists for men and women. You know, there are a single set of Beatitudes there are a single set of fruit of the spirit. It doesn't say that um, men who receive the Holy Spirit will have these attributes and women who receive the Holy Spirit will have these attributes. And some of those attributes are ones that we might not put on list of, of masculine attributes, you know, gentleness being one, um, patience and kind. Nobody would say, oh, yeah, those are marks of a man. Um, the illustration I'll sometimes use to make sense of that is, is I don't think men and women are aiming at different things. We're both aiming at Christ likeness. We're all trying to figure out how to be more like Christ, but to get to that destination, you have to come to terms with that raw material you're working with. And so the illustration is um, my wife and I like to sail. And if you've ever been on a sailboat, um, you can have very different tactics than if you're on a giant cargo container ship. Um, there's a famous race that leaves the uh, West coast and goes to, Hawaii. And if you set out in a cargo ship to make that, you can pretty much chart a direct line and turn the engines on full speed and head directly there. But if you're in a sailboat, it's actually common for people to sail almost 90 degrees away from Hawaii to catch certain trade winds and get a better angle before they angle back. Um, to me, that's the difference between masculine and feminine pursuits is we're both aiming at the same destination. We're both looking for Christ, but to get there, I've really got to be able to inventory what are these masculine instincts I'm dealing with? What are the challenges, the uniquenesses that I face? 
And how do I chart my course, recognizing and taking those seriously and maturing those into something that leads me to that definition of Christ-likeness? So to come all the way back to your question, positive examples. I think you had it exactly right in that you go looking for those examples of, of mature masculinity, of manhood, that resonate with things you're trying to improve or deal with or grow in in your own life. So for me, that can be a really, really wide range of personality or masculine types. So um, anybody who listened to my podcast will know um, Eugene Peterson is, is one of my heroes of the faith. He's a writer, but a very quiet, contemplative kind of pastor. But for me, he's really taught me about faithfulness. What does it mean to just be faithful to the work God has in front of you? That's to my kids, to my congregation, to my spouse. Um, Bonhoeffer is a huge fan of mine. His courage in the face of death and coming to terms with death has, has resonated. Um, I think of my, my grandpa, um, you know, he was, my grandpa, uh, was probably more traditionally masculine in that he was very stoic, not very emotional. Uh, there was not a lot of, I love you or hugs, but he was always sort of a presence in my life, always there. And the quality that I really resonate with him is I look at the, the commitment he had to my grandma. I mean, years and years and years of just faithfulness, that commitment has really shaped how I think about commitment to my own. Um, my dad has been an example to me of work ethic. I see how hard he works in some things. And so to me, that's the task of looking for positive masculine examples. It's not who out there is the toughest or the most manly man and how do I be more like them? It's I've done the work of inventorying my own life. I know the areas I need to mature in and I start to respect those people who have mastered and matured in those areas. And they become for me examples in these attributes of masculinity. You know, before we go to the question about bad examples uh, or just I actually think we should answer that question to all three of us because all three of us are men. You know, what is kind of maybe the biggest misconception, you know, when you think about uh, masculinity and, you know, so like I have two people in my head. We're just going to say it. You don't have to give people's names, but I, I think this is a, so like I think of either Arnold Schwarzenegger, or Tim, the Toolman Taylor, like maybe with Arnold, like the negative thoughts of masculinity is you know, you're huge, you got muscles. And with Tim the Toolman Taylor, like from Home Improvement, maybe I'm aging myself in this podcast. But like, I think the biggest thing is I struggle with is I don't feel like I'm this physical opposing force. I also like I'm not a handyman. Like, you know, the the best tool that I have is my phone to call someone to fix it. So um, I don't know, John, what about you? And then Chase, I'd love to hear for like, Maybe what are those negative pictures of masculinity that are there? Like the uh, so I want to make sure I understand your question right here, Pedro. You're you're saying you're saying what are the ones that we struggle with most? Not even what we but like where does your brain first go oh. when you hear the word mask? Like yeah, we just yeah. talked about positive examples. Yeah, you know. sure, sure. I mean, I think like you. I mean, most of the when I when I hear the term, my brain goes to the machismo kind of way about, you know, <laughs> it's either like, you know, what am I benching? You know, how much am I benching a particular day? Uh, you know, that that's that's one side of it. It could be, uh, you know, that warrior mindset, you know, that that some people get into kind of you got to be the the ultimate warrior of some sort. Maybe that's taking me back to my uh, WWF wrestling days when I was uh, in junior high watching that. I don't know. But uh, but yeah, I think those are kind of the some of the images that come into my mind about that. So I would I would say he man. So so images that come to my mind, He-Man, 
um, G.I. Joe, um, and uh, Andre the Giant slash Hulk Hogan. All of those come to my mind when I'm when I'm thinking about masculinity. There you go. What about you, yeah. Chase? Yeah, I mean, I think you guys are nailing probably for most of us what the image is, right? Um, what's really interesting, though, and I'd be curious, you guys in ministry as well, too, one of the things that surprised me was, um, well, I would say I had this idea that masculinity was a lack of insecurity, that the person who's a man is like always confident in his own self-sufficiency, his own strength, his own abilities. He can fix anything. He can lift anything, right? It's like this confidence. Um, and wrestling with some of that confidence, you would look at people who fit that image of masculinity and think, man, they've got that confidence. And as a pastor, one of the things you sort of, you get in on is you get to start having some of these conversations and recognizing that those external expectations don't deliver the kind of confidence you think they do, right? Mm. You can be really physically strong and still really wrestle with the insecurity of um, kind of husband or father you are, or feeling like your life, you know, isn't deep enough. And you can, you know, you can be able to fix anything in the world and still have huge holes in your life you can't fix. And so you begin to recognize that the, the real challenge is these outward expectations of roles. And you notice when you talk about masculinity, so often it's the things I can do or the lists of, of, of skills that I have, or the, they're all these sort of external things by which I can demonstrate my competence or I can demonstrate um, my mastery of something. And yeah, I, it's really helped me flip that and realize that really what we're all looking for is that same kind of competence and mastery, but, but in myself, right? Because like, mm. most men I know you know, Hey, I've, I've been able to discipline myself physically, but my lust, my desires are completely undisciplined, you know? And, and we know that we know that just because I've disciplined one part of my life doesn't mean I've brought the whole thing into discipline. And that's what I think so many men are looking for, whether they recognize it as masculinity or not. It's that matureness of being able to, uh, to master those instincts. And yeah, you're right. There's so many negative examples that we look at and think if I could just look like that, be like that, have that skill set. I would have that confidence I'm missing. And yeah, it's just not true. Well, and just another thing is you brought that up. That's on my mind. Um, the gender roles have just changed. Like, you know, in some ways, masculinity, there's, um, I don't know, I, I'm, I might get in trouble and get controversial. Like, to assume that a woman's job is at home to cook the meal and do all the chores like that is just i mean repulsive like you look at the 1950s and and i feel like there's been more like empowerment but when it comes to masculinity it's more like even our society and the struggle it talks more about what it shouldn't be than what it should be and that's kind of i think been my struggle. and i loved what you said about jesus where you're like jesus doesn't give gender specific like character traits, they're all there. And that's what I think has become really confusing because if we go on the other side of masculinity, what's a man's role in the world, that's constantly changing as compared to feminism. It's just a weird conversation. I think that's what makes it difficult, at least for me. I don't know, what do you think, John? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I'd love to hear your opinion on yeah. this, Chase. I'd, I'd uh... I think one of the things that, that we struggle with in terms of our cultural understanding of masculinity is kind of the, uh, I'll put it, the John Wayne version of masculinity, which is kind of like that lone cowboy out on the in the wilderness. Like, you have to know everything and be everything and be totally independent from everybody else in order to be a real man. Um, 
thoughts about that definition of masculinity that we culturally kind of adapt? Yeah, well, I think it's unrealistic. Um, but it's also, I mean, this is the, this is what makes the conversation so complex. There are times where maybe that is what's needed, right? And there are yeah. times where my ability to stand and bear that responsibility alone is a mark of my maturity. But it's also a mark of my maturity to recognize when that's not being asked of me and when I do need to seek out help. And that's where these sort of external images of what a man is, I think, really leave us more confused. And, you know, it's interesting. I, for as much as I talk and write about masculinity, I don't wade very deep into the, the masculine roles conversation. And it's not mm. that those aren't legitimate or that they aren't needed, particularly within the church. It's not that the Bible is, is silent on the roles of men and women. There's plenty there worth discussing. But I think how quickly we move to, we're talking about men and women, let's talk about their roles. Mm. It demonstrates how externally focused we are in thinking about how I demonstrate and prove out my masculinity or my femininity. And I think a lot of that stuff gets solved if we first work on the sort of inner work of dealing with the masculine instincts, the masculine attributes and maturing those into Christ likeness. Because so much of my need to fulfill a certain role can sort of mask over or veneer over insecurities that needs to prove myself a man by fulfilling that role or having that role or being good at it. And where I really want to get it as a man, because I think this is where, I think this is where Paul's going, you know, in Ephesians, when he talks about how men and women are supposed to relate in marriage, uh, he's clearly talking about distinctions, but he's also talking about a willingness to sort of give up those external expectations that I can sacrifice all things for the love of another, even my own life. Right. Well, I don't think you get there by just saying, that's my role. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to own it. Right. I think there, there's a kind of internal work that has to happen that gets to a place of, of competence and confidence in who I am in Christ that says, I no longer need an external role to prove that I'm a man. I don't need to demonstrate my masculinity by proving it or competing for it, that that's been secured in my internal work with Christ so that if a moment comes up where I'm asked to play a John Wayne role and sort of go out there and do courage and risk, bear responsibility alone, I can do it. But if I'm also asked to do something humble and quiet and beneath the surface and in a role that's traditionally outside of what's expected for me, but I recognize it's where God's lead, I can do that too. I don't have anything to prove. I don't have to prove myself a man externally. So Mm -hmm. how quick we are to move to the role conversation, I think demonstrates that we haven't built the internal foundation we need to really understand what those roles are and how we serve in them. Mm. Wow. Wow, I, I don't think I've ever heard it talked about that way because you're right. We jump right to the role conversation. Um, you know, here here's kind of yeah, something. It's, it's this emphasis okay. of doing over being, right? And I just want to flip that and say I want to be a man before I try to do the man stuff. And right now we feel like if I just do the man stuff, then maybe I'll finally feel like a man. And I think that's where we're missing it. We're reversing that priority. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? You took the words right out of my mouth. I love it. What does that look like? Uh, for, well, let me use an example. Um, can I use uh, the story of David? Um, so men resonate with David and usually the way they resonate with him is he's a warrior, but he's a poet, right? We love that juxtaposition. And then we also love that he's a king and a man after God's own heart, but he's struggling with his lust. Um, I think David's story is more complex than that. David comes to power in the world of Saul and Saul came to power because Israel wanted a king and they looked at Saul and he was tall and handsome and looked exactly like what they would expect the king. His name literally means the one asked for. And so he becomes this sort of epitome of the outward appearance of a thing. He is what a king, a man, the peak of Israel's hopes could be. 
And the more Saul's story evolves, the more you realize it's an empty shell, right? He's sort of rotting from within and that, that external appearance is not enough to sustain him. David is God's pick, uh, but he battles this world of Saul, this way of sort of fulfilling those expectations externally. And one of the themes you notice in Saul, in David's story is there's this constant motif of external appearance. So um, when he shows up to fight Goliath, what does Saul want to do? He wants to put his royal armor on him to make him look like what a warrior is supposed to look like. Right? You probably don't have a chance against Saul, but at least you can look like you have a chance against Saul. <laughs> and, and David, it's one of his best moments. I haven't tested it, is what he said. It's not authentic. I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to go with who I am. And then, you know, you, I think about the scene where David brings the ark back into Jerusalem and he's dancing before it. And he gets back and Michael, his wife, is sort of just, she's ashamed of his appearance, right? And she said, you basically have exposed yourself. What he's wearing is he's wearing the common garments of a, of a priest. It's the same word that's used for what Hannah would make for, for Samuel when she would show up to the temple. It's just a linen, a linen garment for a worker in the temple. And what she's really embarrassed about is that you have not held up the image of a king. You haven't fulfilled who, the image of who you are. But David won't do it. He realizes he's more who God's called him to be when he's just out in front of the ark like a regular servant. You find that little theme over and over, Jonathan giving his cloak to, to David to recognize him as the future heir, or Tamar, uh, David's daughter, when she's raped, and David sort of refuses to deal with it. She tears her royal robes, and she, she won't put herself back together. She's not going to fake the outward image, right? And so David is constantly in this battle of how do I, I think it's the question of integrity, wholeness. How do I take inventory and responsibility for everything that's in my life and not just try to hold on to the external image and lean into that. I mean, that's really what's going on in the David and Bathsheba story too, right? Hmm. How do I, how do I recognize what integrity is not just, I always do the right thing. It's I'm willing to recognize and own what I do wrong just as much as what I do right. And I'm going to see myself as a whole person. This is this task of inventorying my attributes and knowing where I need to grow. Um, That's David's battle over and over and over again throughout his story. And so it's an even better story for men than just warrior and poet, which is somehow, again, role specific, how it gets reduced to. Mm. I think that is such a wise analysis on your part of just, just the way that you broke that down to the outward manifestations of what we try to hide behind sometimes. And Mm -hmm. then what's really beneath the surface. I see that as a huge struggle in a lot of guys lives. And I think in different seasons of my life that has been, you know, come to the forefront more than others, but definitely has been a theme that has been, you know, underneath the surface for me a lot throughout my life has been, you know, kind of what is the image that I'm portraying to other people versus is that image consistent with what is really underneath the surface of my life? Am I portraying the same thing? Is is that what's going on? Or am I portraying a different image that uh, in, in front of others than what I truly am on the inside? And so it seems to me like that is what you're describing as is one of the essence of manhood is essentially living out in authenticity who you are on the inside and the outside. Is that, am I distilling that down correctly as far as how you're describing that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the work is the taking responsibility for everything that's there. Because one of the real temptations for David, especially as he ages, and I think this is true for us, you know, when you're young and energetic and you're passionate, maybe you're young in faith, there's so much optimism about who you can be and where life can go. 
um, you know, I'm in my mid thirties, you start to hit a point where you realize, man, some of these things in my life are just more complicated than I first thought. And some of these things just won't go away as well as I want them to. And life is way more complicated. And maybe not all of my dreams are going to come true the way that I thought. And what David does that I see happen in a lot of men's life as they age is he begins to disengage the complexities of life. You know, this mm-hmm. is why that scene opens with him and Bathsheba, you know, in the time of year when the Kings went off to war and David's back home and it happens with his kids when they begin to commit some of the same destructive sins he does, he just can't bring himself to even get involved and it ruins his relationships with Absalom and, and his other sons. Um, the real work is that energy of continually engaging what's there. Not just, not just sort of, I'm going to lean into what I'm good at. And you know what, this is just the way men are. This is just the stuff we deal with, you know, so be it. I'm going to, you know, sort of turn a blind eye to it and just, we do this at church, show up, you know, do what's expected of me. It's enough. Um, You've got to keep up that active engagement of faith to say with God's help, I can be more, I can mature into more. He's leading me. The real act is sort of discerning what's going on, what, God's attempting to do in me and submitting, surrendering to that work instead of just turning away from it. So yeah, you're right. Integrity, wholeness, everything that's there, living into it, but the work of taking responsibility for the stuff I don't want to is the real rub, the hard part of that. I, let me try this on you because I just, I love where this is going. Um, you know, I'm Italian. I feel like every podcast is kind of like my mom's sauce, which is really good, except it never tastes well the first time and no matter how you plan it, recipes. So this is great. Um, but what I love about this is I'm thinking about kind of some of our stereotypes for the problems with masculinity. So we have teenagers and men in their 20s. And the, the image that I hear all the time, it, you know, I hear a lot, I should say, is, you know, the the son that's playing video games in the basement you know and then you know you go to 30s and 40s the image i'm hearing is you know the the dad that you know or the husband that you know is hanging out with their friends drinking beer you know in you know watching the game and then like you get to like 50s and 60s and even we start thinking about legacy midlife crisis and there's just sometimes there's leaders that stay too long in their leadership position without raising or developing leaders because it's just easier for them just to do it. And then you get to the grandpa that, you know, sits in the back corner and really doesn't do anything. You're saying that this common theme, at least where we are in society, is like we tell all of those individuals do like just engage, be active but what you're kind of saying is why why are you afraid or why are you stepping back answer the what's going on inside of you first and then engage because we all want to get like you said we all want to get to hawaii it might be a different way but you need to start at why why do i run to video games or binge on netflix when there are roles or roles aren't the best word there are responsibilities i'm supposed to be taking is that is that kind of what you're pointing at? Yeah, I, I think it's one of. I want to be careful because there, sure. there are other types of, of men who are who are in the exact opposite camp. They're unable to check their ambition or they're unable, right? But, but there are absolutely a certain, a certain type of men, and this can be seasonal, right? It doesn't just have to be a personality type. It can be, in fact, I often think the people who believed the most and then found themselves disillusioned by that belief are often the ones most at risk of that disengagement, right? It's the mm-hmm. one with the failed dream. So I think a big part of that is what am I trying to avoid? 
and are there things that God is trying to lead me through that, because it's so easy to escape them today too, right? That instead of, instead of walking into that complexity, which I can't control and recognizing it, right? Instead of submitting to what God is doing through that complexity, we kind of have this tendency as a man, if I can't control it, if I can't conquer it, if I can't, you know, lead it, then I want nothing to do with it. I'll go find the thing that I can. And for sometimes you can reach a point of, of sort of nihilism where nothing has meaning and there's so little I control that for some men, unfortunately, it, it can it can devolve to the point of fantasy and video games and this sort of thinnest layer of control that I can exert in life. And uh, again, I think we've just wrongfully thought that to be a man means to be able to control things. And if I can't, then I'll control the littlest amount that I possibly can. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of it's just giving up the control altogether, recognizing this is complex and it is, we have not ever arrived. This is a long journey that we're on with Christ. What about the ambitious person that you mentioned? How would you kind of speak to that? I, I think that's a great point too. Yeah, well, this is so part of what I'm trying to do in my own writing right now is, is sort of take inventory of some of what I call these masculine instincts and recognizing that that at different seasons, those instincts can be different. So um, uh, Shakespeare has a place in one of his plays where he talks about the stages of a man's life. He has seven of them. And the first and the last are the infant and then the old man. And he sort of makes a little irony out of, you know, you come into the world naked and drooling on yourself and dependent on a nurse. And, and he says, by your last days, you're sort of naked and drooling on yourself and dependent on a nurse. He draws this sort of circle image of humanity. And then the second stage is a child who continues to be dependent on the teacher. But his four adult stages are what I've spent a lot of time unpacking because Shakespeare's so wise when it comes to human psychology. And, you know, he positions those as the young man who's idealistic and full of passion and romance. It's this instinct for adventure, this desire to sort of go out and find my identity through experience. But he says eventually that man will come to, um, to start thinking more about purpose and meaning and ambition, that eventually he begins to sort of, this is the, the soldier in Shakespeare's image, that he begins to make oaths and promises and to live into something bigger. And then uh, his, his next adult stage after that is eventually he begins to worry about his reputation. He's achieved some of those things and he starts caring a lot about, you know, doing what's expected of him and dressing the way that he's expected and fitting into his proper place in society. Uh, so to me, this is that instinct of reputation, respect. And then uh, his final one is that the man, he, ironically, he says he starts to put on a little weight and, and wear his slippers around the house more, that he gets himself comfortable, right? He's sort of, he's got enough money that he can sort of take up his hobbies. He can begin to disengage the complexity. Shakespeare says he begins to lose his voice, right? Which is a way of saying that he, he begins to sort of disengage from the world and just occupy himself with his own interests. So this, this uh, instinct for sort of independence and disengagement. So I try to think about those can happen. They don't have to be sequentially an age like that. They can happen. An idealism that sort of crushes you can lead you into that disengagement. Um, or a lack of purpose can lead you to go want an adventure to try to rediscover it. They can, they can mix up and be different times in our lives. But ambition is a huge one. Because uh, so many men think that in order to be somebody valuable, I have to go and do something valuable. I have to achieve something. And so often the big risk of, of ambition, because ambition's interesting. I, I say it's like, a, it's like a, a potent medicine. You know, somebody who knows how to use it well can save a life with it. It can do remarkable good. But if you're naive and don't know what you're doing with it, it can just as quickly kill you in the wrong dosage. And, mm-hmm. and uh, ambition is like that. The right ambition that you can let go of, that you can you know, that you can recognize God is leading, can do remarkable things and move us to do and make great sacrifices. But it also has this risk of, of replacing ourselves with God and thinking that 
our ambition, our image, our vision of the future is the thing by which we judge others and we judge ourselves and we judge the meaning of life. And if my ambitions don't pay out, I'm a victim or it's injustice or God has not fulfilled his end of the deal. And it puts us in a really dangerous position to start. I use Moses often to talk about this. Um, You know, we can end up sort of uh, imagining ourselves to be God as he does striking the rock, you know, must we deliver this water from you. Uh, His ambition grows so big. He ends up almost imagining he is doing what the people need from God. And that's the danger of ambition. Mm. Wow. Wow. There's so much to unpack it there that I want to read your book right now because it's, it's uh, (laughs) seems like, it seems like there's a ton, ton there. Um, Well, and the big point is I never want to make the mistake that all men are the same and that we're all pursuing the same thing or failing in the same way. That's this work going back to the beginning, right? If you've got to start to take inventory and say, um, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about instinct as their thoughts as if from knowledge. So it's, you believe something to be true as if you had thought about it and and decided, but you haven't, it's something that just seems obviously true because you felt it. Mm. And we all have those instincts that we sort of just assume are how the world works and what it means to be a man and how my life is going to get better. But you, um, you can't assume those things. You've got to come to understand those things, mature those things. Uh, and that can be different for all of us. So masculinity is not the same if you did this, take these four steps, pursue this one thing, then you'll be more of a man. It's more complicated than that, unfortunately. Right. And I think there's things that hold each of us back in unique ways too, right? I mean, I think um, in in terms of some of the, the wounds that we carry around, I mean, that, that was kind of, uh, the first time I really resonated with that was after reading Wild at Heart, the book by John Eldridge. I remember reading that book and going like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize, you know, that so many guys carried around wounds and oh, ouch, ow, there's a, there, that, that seems like that hurts a little bit. So, uh, and then uh, there's another book that I read a few years ago called Healing the Masculine Soul by Gordon Dalby. Really phenomenal book as well. But both of them bring up this concept of wounds. Is your experience, as you think through this concept of, of masculinity, that a lot of us carry around wounds with us that inform how we, how we act and how we kind of that image that we portray to people? Yeah, probably it's, you know, I wouldn't say it's just masculine. I mean, I think clearly, you know, women probably do this. It's this human tendency that we are wounded. And what do we do when we're wounded? We tend to sort of protect or go into a defensive mode. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that defensive mode can make us sort of more instinctual. We can sort of act with less thought because of that defensiveness. Um, And we also can be really reluctant to open those wounds. Um, uh, Sometimes that can be more of a masculine trait that we want to sort of hide those things by disengaging those things or, you know, uh, uh, refuse to go there because we know what that sort of opens and what that unlocks. And that's where there is, you know, this original question about examples of masculinity. I think the biblical characters help us do that well because they're not heroes or idols in such a way that you could say, what you need to do is go be like David. Well, I hope not, right? Or go be like (laughs) Samson. He was strong. Well, I I hope not, right? Uh, It's hard to find a character to say, go be like them because there's so much of their own pain and so many of their own wounds and so many of their own struggles. But the biblical stories help you begin to open up those things. They allow Mm -hmm. you, and this is what good literature does too, right? It allows you to enter into things and experience things. You're even alluding to this in the books you've read. 
I can begin to face things that maybe just on my own, I might not have been able to sort of turn the page on. But here, as I'm doing it, I'm, I'm able to start recognizing, oh, maybe that's that thing I've been feeling, or maybe that is sort of lurking there, and I otherwise wouldn't have addressed it. Um, so yeah, so uh, it, it's part of that process of inventorying myself and needing help to do that, right? So mm-hmm. I do think ultimately this is the work of the gospel and the work of God's word, because as we begin to sort of make these stories our stories and Christ's story our story, it forces us into those things that if we were just sort of taking a psych evaluation or a, a sin inventory on a piece of paper, we might feel real comfortable just checking no on all those boxes. But the story sort of welcoming us, welcome us into a deeper way of thinking and experiencing those things. You know, the other day I was watching um, Hitch was on TV and there's this scene in the beginning where Will Smith um, is coaching uh, this man on going to a date. And, you know, he Will Smith's like, always oh, be yourself. And, you know, at the, at the point in the movie, Will Smith's like, you need to buy these shoes, wear these clothes and stuff like that. And the guy's like, well, that's not me. And Will Smith goes, you is a very fluid term right now. You're the <laughs> one that bought the shoes. You're the one that bought the outfit. And like he, and I just think that that's such a picture of, of our world and masculinity. Like we struggle, you know, without Christianity or the Bible, it's kind of, we want everybody to be individual as long as it doesn't go outside of some certain societal norms. And I think that that's been what the message has been. And what you're talking about with the Bible is like, no, you is not a fluid term in the sense of the way that the world puts it, but you is a fluid term in the sense of like, God wants to change you. God wants to heal you. And we have these characters in the Bible not to become like those characters, but to show that maybe we relate to their stories in such a way for our own journey. I mean, is that something you'd agree with or? Yeah, they teach you the phrase I use. They teach you to be self-suspicious, which I think is a, a lost art. We sort of think because I felt it or thought it, it must be right. It must be true, right? And this is so, man, man, is this true right now in our situation, right? If I have a fear, if I have a question, if something doesn't make sense to me, therefore everyone must be lying. Everyone must be sort of feeding me a conspiracy. Like everybody, if I feel it or think it, it's more true than anything else. Um, what the biblical stories do is it teaches you to be really suspicious of what you think about yourself and what you assume is true because the Bible is so good at giving us these stories where, you know, David's life does not play out the way I expected. And whoa, where did that come from in his life? And wow, look what he had to deal with. And it forces you to start saying, okay, maybe I'm not everything I imagine, or maybe those things that I don't want to deal with are really important to deal with. And they teach you a level of suspiciousness about yourself. Yeah. I've, I would never, I can't imagine ever appealing to myself as a grounds for, for what's good. Right. And <laughs> like that I would know in some way, right. Like, uh, this is, this feels true to me, or this is who I think I'm supposed to be. It's like, well, I struggle to figure out what to order when I go through the drive through Like I'm probably not a good source for what's best in my life or what, what is going to be meaningful in the end. I mean, my passions change with the season. Who knows, you know, where I'm supposed to end up 50 years from now. So a little bit of self-suspicion, a little bit of looking for help from outside goes a long ways to sort of just beginning that process of saying, okay, 
where do I need to grow? Where do I need to mature? How do I get better? Mm. I think that's something uh, we're all deeply wanting. We just don't feel like we have a way forward on. Mm. And the world tells us the opposite, right? I mean, that's the real trap right now of the masculinity conversations. There's sort of two wings to the, to the conversation. It's either toxic and it needs to be dismantled and these new attributes need to be embraced or it's salvific and you need to indulge those masculine instincts. And the reason you don't feel like a man is because you haven't leaned into those instincts that you're feeling. Um, and I'm just really skeptical about both of those because they're not suspicious enough to say, no, probably what I need is a level of maturity that is going to be external. I'm going to have to look outside of myself to be able to find the help I need to mature into something. And neither one of them to me are very optimistic. You know, what you feel is toxic or what you feel needs to be indulged. No, what you feel, the Bible's really good at saying what you feel is, is human, but it's not the way it's supposed to be. And through the work of Christ, that can be matured. The, um, uh, there's a way of talking about, you know, virtue is, is language we've lost in our culture, but um, throughout history has been kind of the primary language of self-improvement or morality that you would develop these virtues. Aristotle thought of them as something I have to practice and get better at. Uh, but the Bible and particularly um, later biblical thinkers uh, around the time of, of, of Augustine and others will start talking about the infused virtues. That as I began to sort of look to God, there's a story about it from the Middle Ages about Mary, who imagines that Mary became a person of perfect virtue as she contemplated God and his grace. And I've always liked that image of the thing I'm looking for, character and virtue and resilience and strength. If I aim at those things, I miss them. What I've got to do is aim at Christ. I've got to aim. I've got to incorporate my story within the bigger biblical and gospel story. And as I began to do that, that story infuses virtue into me. It changes my instincts. It matures those instincts through that story. And I end up finding a new kind of courage, a new kind of conviction, a new kind of responsibility that if I just tried to put together a four-step plan to work up in my own, I don't think would have ever produced it. Wow. Wow, that's so good. And I love how you're just bringing us, you know, continually back to to Jesus in the midst of this and who he is and how that relates to, you know, our search to be men and women of of character, how how that all fits together. Uh, I I just I love how you are seamlessly weaving that in together, and to me that that fits just perfectly into the question that we always ask here on the show. I, John, but you're gonna kill me. I'm gonna kill I, you. I, I'm gonna kill I, Peter. I, I do. No, I do have one more question before before we get to the Jesus question. The Jesus question. Um. <laughs> He's the preacher. I'm not, so it's all it's all good. He can go there. Uh, you're, you're the preacher. Right. Well, you know, every once in a while. Not, that's right. He's, just, he's used to one more point. I know that's how right. That goes. Yeah, one yeah, more, yeah. Well, it's just one more. Everybody. Hey, hey, Springfield, Missouri, home of the Assemblies of God, Pentecostalism. <laughs> you know. Anyways, we we won't go there. Um, what would you specifically say? You know, imagine the 24 year old that's listening to our podcast named Brad. You know, he's listening to this. He's trying to kind of move his way forward. Um, we'll say this so you don't have to buy the book when it comes out, you know, we'll start there. But, you know, what would you say to them about this topic, um, about masculinity to at least get them started on a journey? What would you want them to know? Well, not to invalidate the entire conversation, but if you, uh, if, if you spend too much time thinking about masculinity, I think you missed the point. Um, mm. The, the point is Christ-likeness. Jesus is not just a model of a man. He's a model of humanity. And our goal is to be like Christ, to follow Christ, to become a participant in his kingdom, his story. Um, and so I would say 
your thoughts about being a man and masculinity are a good sort of thermometer check of, of maturity in your life, but it's not the goal. Your goal is not, if I could just wake up and feel like a man, everything would be fixed. Or if people around me saw me as a man, then I would have value. All of that stuff gets secured in Christ. And I think about, um, you know, when Paul has his confrontation with Peter uh, over uh, sort of um, eating and, and socializing with the Gentiles in Antioch, uh, it's in uh, uh, Galatians chapter two. He Paul confronts Peter because Peter's been eating with Gentiles like it's no big deal. And then some important Jewish Christians from Jerusalem show up and Peter starts pulling away from them. And what Paul says, because you could have confronted him with a lot of things, right? He could have said like, you know, how dare you? You're acting racist. You know that these people are your brothers or come on, Peter, you're the one that received a vision that you could eat unclean food. And now you're giving in because you're scared. You know, you're fearful of these, these important men. Um, but instead what he says is he says, you're not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. In other words, you are walking and living as if you believe something to be more true than the gospel story. So for me, that's, that's the thing we're aiming at, right? Mm. What, when it comes to my masculine instincts, when it comes to the way I'm thinking about who I am as a man, what are the narratives or the stories that I'm believing that are different than the story of the gospel? And how do I bring my life into, into line, into step with the gospel so that I'm, I'm believing what Jesus says is valuable, is valuable. And I'm believing that what Jesus says is worth spending my life on is worth spending my life on. Right. And that what Jesus has said, he's done for me, I believe has been done for me. How do I bring myself into line with that? And then watch as my life begins to mature. And as those attributes become mature and I find myself more of the man that I want to be right. It's fine to ask those questions. Am I a man? Am I being the kind of man I want to be? But those are secondary questions. They're sort of symptomatic evaluations of this bigger question. Am I really living into the, the truth of the gospel? And if you do that, that's where I believe, you know, I think, I think masculinity in some ways is like humility or wisdom. Like it feels very strange for me to say like, I'm a wise man, right? Like I've been working on this and I'm now wise or I'm, I'm humble. You know, Lewis does this so well, right? If you aim at humility, you're going to miss it every time. I think manhood is kind of like that. If you're just trying to be a man, you're really missing the point of being a man. Try to be Christ-like, try to embrace the gospel and watch as things like wisdom and humility and true manhood. They sort of, fill in around that better pursuit. Wow. Well, hey, you know what the final question is, John? What does yeah, Jesus I, have to say about this? Yeah, topic? I mean, what? I, I don't know if I can add too much more other than what Chase already said right there. It was a beautiful synopsis. You really tied that tied that up so well. I mean, Peter, if you, we'll give you a final word if you want to say something. Um, I guess my 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 thought of of it is this: just look at who Jesus is. That's what I would tell you. Like for anybody, is to look at the example of Jesus and and he has all the power in the universe and yet lays it aside to walk humbly with us and to to serve and and to give his life ultimately to sacrifice for people. Even though he had all the control in the universe, he gave that up. And uh, I think like you had mentioned early on, Chase, uh, a lot of us are striving for so much control in life that we are not able to step outside of that and see who Jesus really is. And and I think the picture that Jesus gives us of masculinity, of, you know, I, I don't think it's exclusively masculine idea, but certainly that I think a lot of us as men could grab onto is that idea of sacrifice and uh, giving up control of our lives. 
Yeah, I just, I'd add quickly, I was just kind of thinking and trying to reflect on this conversation on the fly. I, I think there's two messages that if you talk to any human, not just men and women, like there's two messages that we want to hear that, that kind of shape our identity. And those two are, I love you and I'm proud of you. You know, if I, if I go to any child with their parent and they talk about the wounds, it's because they've doubted one of those that I don't love you and I'm, I'm not proud of you. And, and I think what Chase, what you're bringing up with this masculinity conversation and aiming at the gospel, not aiming at masculinity is we're all searching for both of those messages. And what Jesus constantly comes back to is, you know, he says things like you are my workmanship you know, you are my son, you are my daughter, I love you, I'm well pleased with you. And for us to really grow as humans, let alone men, it's the moment that the message of the gospel changes our hearts and allows that to shape our identity and we can't get there without it. So pastor, uh, take us home, man. Yeah, no, I think both both of what you're reflecting on is, is really, really helpful, really encouraging. Um, yeah, I don't know if Jesus would have had a lot to say about masculinity, honestly, right? He's <laughs> talking about other things, um, which is kind of our point, too. But, um, uh, you know, Jesus says his burden is light and it's easy, that this is a refreshing thing, that the task of coming to Jesus is not putting more burdens on your shoulders, more, more roles to fulfill, more expectations to live up to. Um, that he takes those things off of your shoulders. And he's actually, it's a task of freedom, right? To step into those things free from the demand to prove it, free from the demand to fulfill a certain image or role, free to, from having to live up to maybe some parent expectation or some friend's expectation. You don't have to fix the sink. You don't have to be able to fix the car. You don't have to be able to bench a certain amount. If you do, great, that's fine too. The freedom is you don't have anything to prove in Christ. Mm. There's nothing to prove. And as soon as you lose that and have that freedom, it actually frees you to be able to do all sorts of things that might not be in your original instincts or in your original comfort zone. When you don't have to prove it, suddenly you're able to carry and do things that you weren't able to before. So I think that's I think that's what Jesus would have said. Man, I'm gonna help you I'm gonna help you achieve that thing you're looking for, but it's a whole lot easier if you'll just surrender and trust me. Mm. Chase, thanks so much for joining us. Um, Chase is on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We're going to be tagging him in our post. He writes the Pastor Writer podcast. Um, I'd encourage you to listen to that even if you're not a pastor. Um, I just listened to his episode with Derwin Gray, um, who just wrote a book on happiness. And so just, it was great conversation. So encourage you all to get there. Make sure you find us at whygodwhypodcast.com. Use the hashtag WGWpodcast. And uh, leave us a great review. We hope that you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much.